Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. As business leaders, how do we identify the high performers within our teams? How do we tap into those traits and make everyone in the organization a high performer? My first guest today is a high-performance psychologist that has worked in the trenches of high-stakes environments. Dr. Michael Gervais is also co-founder of Compete to Create, a joint venture with the NFL's Seattle Seahawks coach, Pete Carroll, and together they have built a framework to enhance high-performance cultures by focusing on mindset training for individuals. He is also the author of the Audible original, Compete to Create, an approach to living and leading authentically, which just launched this week. Dr. Michael Gervais, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. My first question, what are the traits of high performers? Uh, what, what traits do high performers have in common? That's my first one. And, and what, do, what should we as business leaders be looking for? First of all, thank you for um, the generous offer and the wonderful uh, introduction. Thank you for having me here. And I would say uh, when it comes to traits, there is no string theory. There's not a string theory for best in the world. And so let me go upstream for just a moment is that the tip of the arrow performers, the best of the best, the half percenters are individually uniquely themselves. Now that's a big statement. They tend to be individually uniquely themselves. So if there is a common bond amongst them is they have figured out how to get to the truth. They're clear on their purpose. They're relentless and uncommon in their pursuit toward that aim. And they're doing it to their, in their own way. Now, what drives them? That varies. How they respond? That varies. I will say, though, this relentless internal organization towards an external purpose is very clear for them, which is good news for the rest of us because um, most people struggle to know their purpose in life. And it's not an easy thing to sort out. It is, it's hard. Matter of fact, yeah. Harvard did a 75-year study to you know, try to understand what's the difference between people that report being fulfilled and not fulfilled. And having a sense of purpose was one of those core traits. So that's kind of some of the big lifting. The other big lifting for us to take away from best of the best is their ability to live in the present moment. And while that might sound trite, it might sound like it's somewhat easy to do, it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. The natural state of our mind is sloppy. It's curious. It's undisciplined. And those that have a disciplined mind can stay in the present moment more often. And the reason the present moment is so important is because that is where high performance is expressed. It's the keyhole to high performance, if you will. It's also where wisdom is revealed. We want to go a bit deeper. And it's where all things that are good and beautiful and true are experienced. And so the present moment is the keyhole for flourishing in life. And that requires, to my best understanding, training. And mental skills training is what we're talking about, psychological skills training. Let's talk about that. Michael, you mentioned being in the moment. And, you know, I'm one of those guys that's got, oh, man, squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. I'm jumping a lot like that. And that's, uh, these ideas come to me. But I do, you know, when I'm hunting, when I'm doing the things that I like to do or the things I do in business, I focus in, I get very centered. What are some techniques that I should use 
to stay in that moment because I think that's a real important thing to not all of a sudden go thinking over here or going over here, but stay in that moment. What should I be doing? Well, first let's go upstream just a moment because your question is great. And I would frame it instead of a tactic into a training protocol, if you will, or a training um, approach to being in the present moment. But let's go upstream for a moment is that if we oversimplify our minds and our brain, which is a dangerous thing to do because it's very complicated. It's a very nuanced relationship between the three pounds of tissue that sits in our skull and this software. If you think about the mind as the software that's making sense of the world around us and interpreting events, is that if we go upstream to it, our brain's job is really twofold. One is to manipulate the environment in a way for survival. So movement and manipulating of the environment. And that means that what it's doing is scanning the world to find what's dangerous. And what we found is if the brain locks onto something that is dangerous, either real or perceived, call it pressure, if you will, call it stress in kind of the layman's term, that our brain locks in and it is absorbed completely with the, you know, the, the, the tiger's um, fangs, right? Like completely locked in. It's the survival mechanism. So why do I share that with you? Because danger, real or perceived, is a forcing function to being present. If we work with that in an intelligent way, we can say, oh, okay, well, I don't have saber-toothed tigers anymore in, in my life, so what can I use to help my brain naturally be switched on and fully immersed? Call it challenge. Mm. So if you reorganize your life and say, and you've heard it over and over again, right? Like challenge is a big deal. Like the best in the world run to the edges of challenge and they're looking for challenge and they see their, their opportunities as challenge or challenges as opportunities. But it's really a, a brain structure that we're talking about is that if you can find something that is risky, dangerous, wonderfully challenging, that your brain is going to become attracted to it. So that's one way. The second way is through an ancient tradition. Um, modern science is barely catching up to the wonderful benefits of mindfulness. So if mindfulness is a confusing word, some people like to call it meditation, but it is the practice of building awareness. It's the practice of refocusing to the present moment so that we can build some insights about how things work, about how yourself works, how other people work, just insights. And then with enough insight, you end up getting to some wisdom. And then when you get to a sense of wisdom, things just kind of get simple. They slow down. You're able to spend more time in the present moment. And let's call the present moment the signal and recognize that there's lots of noise around us. And the aim is to have a high signal to noise ratio. The signal is the present moment. The noise can come from internal chatter, negative self-talk, whatever you want to call it. It can also come from in the, like what you, you know, talked about the external cues, the squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. Yeah. And essentially, you know, I want to talk about training with you because training the mind is not a hack. It's not a trick or a tip. It's not something that simple. It's a fundamental organizing your life so that you're training one of three things. And this is essentially what we do at Compete to Create as we pull back the curtain on how we've worked with some of the best athletes in the world is we say, okay, you can only train three things. You can train your craft, you can train your body, and you can train your mind. And the best, and the best of the best, they're not leaving that third leg of the stool up to chance. They are investing in training their mind. 
They're doing all. You can't just do one or the other. I mean, you can get really good at it, uh, one piece or two, but you really need to have three. I have those for my own condition of satisfaction about what I want in life. And I always tell, I can, I can, it's tough to get by with one or two. You really have to have that. So let's talk a little bit about the psychological framework of a high performer. Can anyone become a high performer or is it innate? It's a great question. Okay, so let's not call it innate. Let's let's pull apart a couple of variables to have a really strong understanding of it. Is that there's a difference between talent and skill. So mm. talent is typically referred to as what we're born with. And then skill is what we layer on top of that from a deliberate, nauseatingly deep focused approach to refining those talents. And so are you born with it? Well, you are born with some talent. But that typically is not enough for most people. And on the world stage of talent independent of craft, there are the one percenters that eat pizza, are drinking liquor, are smoking whatever, and they wake up in the morning, they've got a six pack, they can jump 42 inches, you know, they can they can hit the high note with effortlessness. Like there are do, those do, do a podcast, you know, do yeah, <laughs> do, do yeah, some right, right. <laughs> it, it, right. like it, the, the, it's an effortless, but that is so rare. And to think that you're that one person um, that one half of one percenter that has those gifts is, you know, is rare. And you might be. But for the majority, the mass majority, it requires a disciplined approach to training. And that, you know, that, that's a big deal now to say, okay, how am I going to get better? And then there's a science about getting better at getting better. And psychology sits right at the center of that. And so I'm not sure if I completely answered your question. But, uh, but let me ask this question because I kind of joked about it. You know, like, look, I can I can drink scotch and get up in the morning and right away do a I can actually drink scotch right before my podcast and probably do the podcast. Right. I'm not I'm just joking about that or eating pizza, which I had for lunch. But nonetheless, but I can still and go perform. Isn't it also about finding that talent that matches your skill set or develop the skill set with the talent to see that you can really excel above other people? I mean, there are things that I'm really good at that I know that I'm better at others, but I'm not going to be playing basketball. You know, I'm not. I'm not that kind of guy, right? Is, is, isn't there also that matchup of that that has to be important? Well, you're, you're, there's a tripwire here that we're playing with. And that tripwire is, how am I defining high performance? And mm. how am I defining success in life? And so if you happen to be six foot eight, 42 inch vertical, you know, big brain, but you, you, you don't like shooting the basketball. So you're built like LeBron James, but you don't like it. Ah, that's going to you're at some point that's going to become problematic i think as a sense of fulfillment in life and i would suggest based on my understanding of being around world class world leaders is that the best of the best there is a love for getting better in the thing that they're trying to get better at and it's an unlocking and with with that unlocking we can become absorbed in the nuances of the craft and that really is the path of mastery and so there's some nuances here to pay attention to is like do you just want to do the thing you're good at? Or do you want to have a sense of fulfillment and purpose in life? And if you can figure that out and sort that out and then layer on top of it, what you like getting better at, there's something really important. Now, that being said, if you want to be the number one best in the world, that's an interesting framework. Because what I've noticed is that there's two approaches to be the best or to be your best. And there is a cost and benefit analysis to do for both of them. And what I'm seeing right now across multiple sports and multiple domains of performance is that, again, the tip of the arrow are decoupling 
what they do from who they are. So many of us have swallowed this idea that I am what I do. Why else would your heart thump like it was a survival mechanism as you go on stage for a keynote? Why would that be? Because you have fused what you do with who you are. And the great fear in modern times is not the saber tooth. It is what other people think of us. And so we call that FOPO, fear of people's opinions, as one of the great constrictors for human potential. Yeah. And so I, I, I shared this mechanism with you because I think that we've got to sort out, like, how do you want to live your life? Do you want to be the best or your best? And understand the costs and benefits of both. And if you can pull apart the doing from the being, it's a big deal now. And the best in the world are saying, okay, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be more rather than do more. I'm trying to be more grounded, more authentic, more present, more creative, more expressive, more talented, be more here now for other people because no one does the extraordinary alone, Jeff, as you would recognize. It's too complicated. It's too big. And then so from that state of being, they let the doing flow from there and the output is tenfold. Well, and if you're not practicing that, I'll use my own uh, uh, situation. And you know, today I was talking to my team and I said, I've let you down because I haven't been with you. I haven't been there with you when you've brought me problems and issues I'm not doing over here. So not being. So you, you're, you're also talking a little bit, and it sounds very, so much close to being in a mindfulness practice, or is it the same? Because we have a mindfulness council for a lot of our leaders here, and we have got a great, some great people. Is that part of this now? Okay, so the, the short answer is yes. And when you were asking about framework, at Compete to Create, we've built a, a model that has five main pillars. So we'll talk about framework. And, and, and I'll, I want to explain how mindfulness sits in there. So the first pillar is self-discovery. Get to know who you are. Really understand that. Like investigate the darker areas of who you are and really understand what makes you work. What are you afraid of? What are your strengths and assets? What are your guiding principles? I mean, that's a really big question. What are the principles that will help guide your thoughts, your words, and your actions? And I'll tell you what, when people know that with great certainty, nobody can take that away from you. Right. And it's a very powerful place to be. So that's the first pillar. The second pillar is mental skills. And it's a skill to know how to become confident. It's a skill to know how to become calm and intense in the same moment. It's a skill to know how to focus in the present moment. And then so that's number two. Number three is psychological framework, which is we found that optimism is at the center of mental toughness. So optimism is the general belief that the future is going to work out. So when you're getting kicked in the stomach or punched in the mouth, metaphorically or in actuality, this fundamental belief that, you know what, it's going to work. Let's stay. Let's keep going. Let's grind. Let's go. Let's, that is optimism. But you know what? If left untrained, the brain will win. And the brain wants you to play it safe and small. And that is a psychological framework for pessimism and cynicism. And Jeff, I haven't met a world leader in a discipline that is a pessimist. So the yeah. opposite of that is optimism. So, and that's a trainable skill. Okay, so those are three. The fourth is recovery. And the fifth is mindfulness. And so mindfulness, a, the practice of mindfulness is the golden thread that runs through any psychological, dynamic, progressive growth arc. And it's a, it's a, you know, if you ask the best in the world, how important is the mental part of the game in any discipline, they nod their head <laughs> and they say, yeah, it's a separator now. And so mindfulness is the golden thread that runs through it. C-Suite Radio. 
I was with a group of celebrities talking about how to build your personal brand. They had me in for a group. It was a very private event. And I was talking about how to do that. How do you build your brand? How do you do this thing? And then one of them said, one of the key questions was, Jeff, how do you deal with those little voices in the back of your head that say you can't, you can't, you can't? And I, of course, said, well, I stopped listening to those voices a long time ago. You know, how do, how, how do these high peak performers deal with those little voices in their head? So let's talk about mindfulness. Let's go back to it because your answer is awesome. You know, and mindfulness, when I talked about awareness, I was talking about awareness of really four things. So with a mindfulness practice, you become more aware of your thoughts, more aware of your emotions, more aware of your body sensations, and then more aware of the unfolding environment around you. And with that greater awareness, you can course correct. So when you become aware of your thoughts and you make a fundamental decision in your life that I'm going to use my mind and I'm going to cultivate a psychological approach to help build self and others, to be more connected to myself, to others and mother nature. And so if that is a fundamental decision that you make to build your mind, then as soon as you recognize constricting thoughts, like you don't have it. You're whack. They're going to find something out. Whatever those negative constricting thoughts are that you just kind of say hello and goodbye to them. And you say, hey, we've had this conversation. Like, And then you got to figure out how to work with that thought. And so the way to work with it, it might be a breath to interrupt the physiological state, or it might be going to something that is more productive. Now, we talk about front-loading our mental training before moments of great intensity. So we train in calm environments, and then we up-level that intensity. So that's a front-loading approach. With a front-loading approach, you practice self-talk, if you will, in calm environments. How do you want to speak to yourself? Well, how about do some deconstruction? When you are flat out at your best, what does it sound like? And I'll tell you this, that there is no faking till you make it. It's, it's wrong. Anything that you're going to fake is fundamentally an error. And so self-talk, what you say to yourself, needs to be grounded in something that is credible. How do you build credible self-talk? You got to do freaking hard things. And I'm not talking about just physically hard things. That's for 1980. I'm talking about doing things that are emotionally electric and charging, and they, they, they amplify and ambience. There's an ambience to your entire being because your emotions are on the end of their, you know, the hairs of your body. And so doing that is the real hard work. And that can come from doing something physical but it can also come in your living room by saying something that is difficult to say. So and, and very, very important right now, given the fact that a lot of people are in their living room, a lot of people are at home, not doing the things they would normally do. We've interrupted their routine. You know, you like those athletes. I remember when I used to play and I used to play rugby at a fairly high level and, and, I would have a routine that I would go through to get me worked up to get ready for that, right? Well, we've lost those routines. My, my commute used to be down the street and around the corner and up to my office in New York. Now it's just going downstairs, right? So it's really done that for a lot of people. I want to ask, I want to go back to FOPO because I thought that was really cool. The, the fear of people's opinion. Why are we so programmed to let other people's opinion, you know, screw with our head? Why do we allow that to happen? It seems like it's built in. Like, I do care what they think. You know, I, I don't anymore. I really don't give a shit. But most people, most people do want to know, well, what do they think of me? What do they think of me? And if I really ask myself, I, I still want that too. I, I really, too, I say that, but I really want to know, 
what people think. Why are we, why are we, why are we wired that way? It's a good, it's a really good question. There's not a simple answer. The best we can do is to have a quick conversation about the brain and maybe we map on some evolutionary psychology. So from an evolution standpoint, we would say that not that long ago, but hundreds to thousands of years ago, if you made some performance mistakes, and if you couldn't perform to the standard of the tribe, you might be asked to leave. So if we were going mm. out into the, uh, into the wild to bring back food for our family, then, and, and I kept choking, you and I were responsible for bringing back the food for the family. And I kept choking under pressure and I kept, you know, breaking the arrows and I kept, you know, misstepping on whatever. And every time we come back, the tribe goes, where's the food? And you point to me, it's like, Gervais, you know, he did his thing again. <laughs> At some point, you're not going to ask me to come back. Okay. And mm-hmm. you're gonna be like, forget it, Gervais. Like you're, you're not part of this now. And you've actually cost some people to be malnourished and we're getting into danger zone. You know what? You're, you're, and so there's an ostracization that would take place. So that's a little bit of evolutionary psychology with some liberties there. And we think that that maps onto the same center of the brain. If we do an fMRI, the same centers of the brain, same networks of the brain that are responsible for general fear, whether it's a saber tooth or it's another person's opinion. And there's a mode, a default mode network in the brain. And what does that mean? The default mode network is the network that's on most of the time. Okay. And that network, we think that a, a majority of that network is checking in. Am I okay? Do they think I'm okay? What are they thinking of me? Am I okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? I think this is okay. What do they think of me? So the majority of the time, it's a self-referencing checking. And the way to inoculate that, because we believe that that might be one of the core seeds of suffering, is constantly checking in on yourself. One of the ways to inoculate that is a deep focus into a task. And so that deep focus could be something like holding on to the edge of a cliff because you're cliff you know, climbing, or it could be something like a really intense conversation with a loved one or in a boardroom or designing a pitch deck or whatever it might be. But deep focus is a way to inoculate that. Guess what? Meditation and mindfulness is also the practice of deep focus. And so there are many ways to damp down this pervasive need to check in to see if you're okay. If that default mode network is constantly checking, then what it's doing is it's also checking the environment to see if the environment is okay. What's in our environment? They're not saber-tooths, they're people. So we map on this old mechanism. When we see a person, we say, do they think we're okay? What are they thinking of us? So it's biological, it's psychological, and there's a way through it, which is deep focus training. C-Suite Radio. Compete to Create is coming out tomorrow. Tell me more about it. So it was born out of a partnership that Coach Carroll and I built. Coach Carroll's the head coach of the Seahawks. And one day we're up at the training center and he comes out of his office and he says, Mike, this is about six weeks going into our first Super Bowl. He says, Mike, can you feel what's happening? I was like, yeah. And what he was talking about is 150 alpha competitors with their noses pointed in the same direction. And so he says, do you think, without skipping a beat, he says, do you think anyone would be interested in what we're doing here? My eyes light up and I'm, I'm about to say yes, and, but I don't know. And he says, let's just write it down. So we took his best practices on how to create a culture where people can do their very best work. And what we found is that it's a relationship-based culture that is born in developing people to become their very best collectively. 
And then uh, the combination to my uh, input, which is to help people train their minds that want to be their very best. So it was like one and one was 11. And we said, let's just write it down. So it was back of a napkin. That, those insights and practices met a whiteboard that met a, a, a deck. We started to do some work with Microsoft. We started with 12 people and then it turned to 25 and then it turned to 2,500. We met with the CEO, Satya Nadella, who's a beautiful man. And he says, right, this is exactly the way I want to support my workforce is that what I'm looking for is to help people be in the present moment, do their very best work, have a fulfilled life while we're doing it together, our shared mission together. And so they helped us build an eight-week online course. And to date, just in Microsoft, we spread it out now to other enterprise and individuals as well. We've done at Microsoft somewhere between 30 and 40,000 people that have gone through this course. That's like over 300,000 hours that they dedicated to training their workforce to train their mind to live in the present moment more often. So that's Compete to Create. And the book is meant to be a companion. And there's, I think we hit that sweet spot in the Audible original, which is the sweet spot between science, good, great stories, fun stories, and then putting handles on psychology so that you have takeaways that you can go practice to become more of yourself. That's awesome. Well, it's great to have you with me here for this interview. I know there were a lot of questions from the audience that we've got. Maybe you and Trish could share. That'd be awesome. We do have a lot of questions. All right, let's start off with Kevin Lake, who asks, can you explain the mechanics of using mental imagery or visualization? Oh, great question. Okay. So it's one of the core skills. Mental imagery is, many people might call it visualization, but let's call it mental imagery for a reason. And I want to start with a story, is that on the Finding Mastery podcast, Bob Bowman is Michael Phelps' coach. And so we're in a conversation about how and why, what does Michael do and, and how is he so extraordinary? And he talks about the way that Michael does mental imagery. And so he creates amazing sensations in his body that it makes it feel like it's lifelike. So part of mental imagery is creating an image that feels exactly like you're in the environment that you want to do well at. But what Michael Phelps does is something that's different than many. And he spends a specific amount of time, probably somewhere around 10, 15% of his time doing mental imagery, seeing himself in a compromised position. So most people, when they do imagery, well, first of all, most people are not doing imagery in a disciplined way. Michael Phelps, the best in the world is doing it in a disciplined way. Okay. So that's a separator. The research is ridiculous around imagery. It really is. But what he does is he, he would, he spent time prior to 2008 Olympics, seeing his goggles fill up. Why would someone do that? Because if something like that were to happen, he wanted to have a map. He wanted to have sorted it out before it actually happened in the pool on the Olympic stage. You know, the, one of the greatest competitions of all time. So he spent some time that, and most of us know the story in the 2008, it just so happened that his goggles filled up. And so he, it was a couple laps into the final turn and he had a map. He was able to rely on how he sorted it out and he had a sense of ease at it. Now, if we're not careful, some people might say right now, well, because he imagined it, he made it so. I just want to say that ain't how it works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's not how it works. The best science that we can lean on would say no. And so we can leave that for some clever artists and writers to say, if you think it, it happens. I've never seen that happen in my experience with the best in the world, but I have seen people that prepare themselves well 
both using their mental imagery, using their technical skill development, using the training of the mind to position themselves to capture opportunities that are rare and extraordinary and wonderful. And essentially, we walk through in the book like how to practice and do mental imagery so that it, you can be quite simple with it. It's not more difficult than thinking about doing six to eight minutes or more on a regular basis of seeing the most beautiful movie you could imagine with yourself being right at the center of it. All right, we have a question from Barry Spilchuk. Let's say, says Barry, you're on track and then a coach reminds you of a past screw up or a mistake. How do you bounce back from a negative comment from a coach or your leader or your boss? That's awesome. All right, so it depends on the way that the coach said it. Let's say the coach um, is giving you some information and it's, it's technical information. You have to figure out how to use that information, even if it's a little scratchy. But let's say that the coach is frustrated, rolls their eyes and says, you're never going to figure it out and remind you of all the times you've been lame. Okay. Let's just go with that, lap, that, that second one there. At some point, you've got to make a decision about, is this coach going to help me? You know, and is this the style of the coach? So there's an examination there. The second is to say, I need a filter. What I need to do is I need to put, and I learned this from an NFL Super Bowl champion, is that he works with a filter that he puts in front of himself. So any information that's coming through has to go through a filter. And that filter is catching all the BS. It's catching all of the you're not good enough stuff. And what's coming through is only the things that are going to be constructive to get better. For example, this was the example that the Super Bowl um, athlete shared with me. He says, the filter comes through, the coach says, I've told you a hundred times. Now, this is in front of all his friends. I've told you a hundred times that it's only a half step. You're taking a full step. You're never going to figure this out. What throws the clipboard down? Like, what is wrong with you? This would never happen at the CLC Hawks, by the way. And so, so he's like, oh my God. And he's like, he's getting spit on basically by another adult man. He's embarrassed in front of his friends. And he, he, he you know, got tight. That's it's normal reaction. Then he went home. He's like, that was an awful practice. I'm not going to become the athlete and the man I want to be if I shrink in those experiences. So he put up a shield and the shield caught the next time. This is what it caught. Same scenario this is what it caught. Oh, right. Half step. I can do it. Half step. That's all I got to do. Half step. Thanks, coach. So find the technical. And then you got to find ways to not swallow the hook that you're not good enough or that one time in the past you screwed up. So mistakes are the fuel to get better. Like without it, we're in trouble, you know, like if mistakes are required. And so, but it's the filter to be able to make sense of the information. I absolutely love where, where you're going with the entire uh, package of insights that you've shared with us, Michael. And I mentioned earlier when we were speaking about training at the Olympic Training Center in Canada um, uh, for figure skating, and we did the mental imagery uh, and, and it was very much the, the Russians were, you know, really leading the charge in that space and, and were advancing despite a lack of resources compared to what we had in North America. And so it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me where you're going with all of this. And we had a couple of really great questions. Um, Cindy Tochik is one of our uh, thought council members in C-suite network. And, and she was asking us to go into a little more depth of why the brain seems to work against us. And, and I think, 
you know, tied into that, Jason Van Camp, it's so awesome that you're here with us today, Jason. Um, he was saying, you know, I've got, I've got a member on my team that has severe ADD, you know, so like when we have those scenarios where it's literally working against us, what do we do? How do we capture that? How do we support our team um, in, in working through those things individually as well? That's beautiful. This is one of the aims that Microsoft was looking for as well. Um, as the, the reason they made their commitment is because if left untrained, if you leave the mind untrained, the brain will win. And the brain's dictum is survival. And so if we think about the difference between, and it sounds cheesy when I say it out loud, but surviving and thriving, you know, like surviving is a lower standard of performative expression. And it's a required mechanism. Without it, we'd be in trouble. So it's not that the brain is working against us, it's working towards its prime dictum, which is to make sense of the world and scan it for danger. If you didn't have that, you would die early. And there are some people that don't have this mechanism working properly, like they can't feel heat, they can't recognize dangerous people, and they end up having a much shorter lifespan. So the brain is doing its job, it's doing it well. What I'm hearing in that statement is that the mind, your mind, is not conditioned enough or disciplined enough or skilled enough to effortlessly or eloquently manage the signals that are coming from the survival mechanism. And that's okay. Like, and I don't say that in a critical way. I, I am a work in progress as well. But as we train our minds and we're able to get to the true nature of things, we're able to work with our emotions, we end up being able to be more nimble, more flexible. And that begins with awareness. Awareness, the tr the, one of the great trainings of awareness is mindfulness. Journaling is another one. And the third is conversations with wise men and women. And when I share this with you, I'm encouraged to say, awesome, you're aware of that there's something that's not quite working. So, work, so develop these systems in your own mind to be able to navigate those prickly, scratchy, you know, internal combustive experiences that feel like you want to tighten up. And that's an opportunity, a big time opportunity. And I'd say it sits right at the center of human flourishing, as well as high performance, um, investing in training your mind. And it's not, this is rather simple to understand, but it's actually quite challenging to do. And that's why we, we pulled apart like this thing for an eight week program. It's like, let's just walk you through the entire package as opposed to just one tactic. There's no hacks here. There's no shortcuts, you know, you know, as I said. So it is an arc of training and growth that is um, kind of at the center of people who want to be their very best. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.